talk about what I call in the book of, I'm going to use this stand, what I call the book of, the book of Zechariah, the end game. Now, it's a big day today, isn't it? Yeah, I'm so excited. I, 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 I haven't been this excited about a Super Bowl in a while. You know, it's, uh, for some years I saw somebody um, with a Raiders shirt come in earlier this morning and I, I felt for the man. But uh, there have been seasons like that. Uh, so, you know, you always, next season, next season. I haven't had a reason for about eight years now to be excited about the Super Bowl like, like this, like this year. This is the big game. And you know, it's interesting, if you, if, you would, if you will suffer a Seahawks fan just for a moment, it's interesting. The Seahawks, even in the preseason this year, among the players, they begin to begin to talk among themselves and encourage one another. They looked around at the team and they looked around at the pieces that were in place and they said, men, this could be our year. This could be our time. This, this year it could be ours. There's no reason at the end of the season we won't be there in that photo that's on your notes and on the Bolton cover MetLife Stadium. Did you catch that? I don't know if you know, year, week by week, as we're going through the books, I try to pick a picture that fits something related to the message. And in fact, the dashboard clock on the car, that normally has significance as well. Normally, that's a key verse in the book that we're, reason, we're looking at. That's, it's not a key verse this week, no. It's game time, all right. But the picture has something about it, because what the... what what. That team did this year. What the Seahawks did is they, they begin, it's just the standard leadership principle, they begin with the end in view. They said each game is toward that game. And that was true at the beginning of the season. It's also true when they were in the middle of it, keeping that focus before them, even though sometimes there were some fumbles and foibles and we thought, oh, how could this be? Still, keeping the end in view, there's, there's something to learn from that, right? Well, today's a big game. But there is an even bigger game, if I could call it that, just to stretch the analogy a little bit. There's an even bigger deal, an eternal deal that's going on, and that's why we're doing this, this series through the Bible. One book each week, book after book, trying to, trying to get a better handle on that bigger story of God's Word and how it ties together. We'll see that in Zechariah today. That there's a bigger game going on, and, and in the midst of it, there's an end game. And people in the midst, in the middle of the season, if you will, if we can keep in mind what, what this is really all about, this is not just about me lining up here and, and smashing into that guy or taking down that guy, or somebody else is going to take down me. It's, it's bigger than that. It's much bigger than that. It stretches farther than we might be able to see, although enough of the end we can see if we'll, if we'll tune our ear to it. And seeing the end makes a difference in how we play today, if I can carry the analogy. What I do today matters in view of the end game. Let's go to the book of Zechariah. In the book of Zechariah, the, uh, the, the prophet, he's prophesying roughly the same time as, Hag, as the prophet Haggai. This is about 
two years after, a year to two years after a, a band of, of, of um, what they call it, a remnant of Israel has returned from Babylonian captivity back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And they started rebuilding the temple, and yet it fell off. And so about 18 years go by without any building, without any completion. The temple is languishing while they're building their own houses. We talked about that last week in the book of Haggai. There's a people that are, have been discouraged. They were stirred up to build, but they have been discouraged. There's opposition around them, people that don't want them to build, don't want them to carry out their mission. There is perhaps corruption among the civil government of these returning Jews. There's even a siphoning of temple construction funds and supplies into the um, finishing and enlarging of people's own homes. As the new temple begins to take shape, the oldest generation who remembers the previous temple, 70 years plus earlier, or maybe they remember stories of what the previous temple had looked like, and they see this in comparison and they're, they're discouraged. Can it ever be like it was? Will these people, as a people, will they always be looking in the rearview mirror wistfully, longingly for those good old days. Because of their own selfish sin, dysfunctional failure as a chosen people of God, they wonder, can God still use us? Will God still use us? Can our future as a people ever be what it once was? Is the best of the blessing passed us by? Sometimes we wonder things like that. Will God really do what he has once promised? How could it still be possible? Looking around at the remains of the rubble, it really doesn't seem like it. Now, if you stretch that feeling into some of your own experience, you can look back at some events in your life and some choices that you've made, some, some sin that you have either wandered into or deliberately chosen, and it's come at a cost. Poor choices in life bring poor consequences in life. Now, sometimes things come upon you that are not a result of your own sin. They're the result of somebody else's sin, and yet still, in the midst of this rubble, can it ever be what it was supposed to be? What will God do with this? I want to talk to us this morning about what it is that God is doing. That's, that's what Zechariah does. Zechariah comes in behind Haggai. Haggai comes in with, a, with a, a compelling word to consider your ways. Rise up and build. Let's do this thing. God has given it to us. Zechariah comes in and says, let me tell you why. Let me tell you. This is, this is much bigger than here. This is much bigger than now. This is much bigger than us. Let me, let me paint a compelling picture of what it is that God is doing in the world, what it is that God is going to do, and how our part, our little bit here today fits into that. That's what Zechariah does. He motivates a people by, by not telling them brand new truth that they didn't know. He tells them the same truth in new and compelling ways. He, he reminds them of their own unique role in this bigger God story. He he borrowed from the previous prophets because he's not telling new things. And in the same way that he, he borrowed from the prophets, the New Testament writers borrow from Zechariah. This is a book we probably don't much read, and yet it's referred to more than many of the other prophets. 
in the New Testament. It's quoted directly or it's alluded to or phrases pulled out of it to remind people of what he said. We're going to see that, that um, in Zechariah, what we do today is part of a much bigger story, a much bigger plan. There is an end game. God is going to wrap this up together in the way that he has planned, the way he has intended, all the way from the beginning. Now, if you look at the book of Zechariah, you could divide it into, into three sections. This end game, you could say, okay, now I had a little fun with my PowerPoint. I, I chose colors intentionally. I hope you will forgive me for that. I want to point out I did not wear something cheesy like a Seahawks tie, so you will just give me a little grace here. There's some guy I always see at the games on TV, and he has this bright green coat, and I didn't get one of those, okay? We're all grateful for that. All right. In, the, in this end game, though, that as, as the prophet Zechariah paints it, first of all, there are six visions, and I'm not going to take the time to go through those six visions. They're apocalyptic visions. They're, they're a bright, fresh way of describing and showing what it is that God is doing in the world. I did describe those for you on the backside of your notes because I didn't want to spend a lot of time there, but it's, it's good to consider. So in those first six chapters, there are eight night visions. Uh, this is what God is doing, and there's reassurance to the people from these visions. There's a transitional section. Well, how is God going to bring about what, it's, what, he, what he has indeed promised how can that happen? Will it be through our same empty religious practice? In chapters 7 and 8, there are four brief messages from the Lord that confront how is this going to happen. God is going, it's not going to be through religion, but through the people's genuine repentance, spirit-led repentance, they, God is going to restore them into true rejoicing in his presence. So those four words, religion, repentance, restoration, and rejoicing. You find those in chapters 7 and 8. And that brings us then to how is God going to do these things? How is God going to make this work? How will he restore this people? How will he complete his big plan on planet Earth? That's where I wanted to spend some time this morning. So if you would turn then to chapter 9 of the book of Zechariah. Chapter 9 in Zechariah, if you're using a pew Bible, you'll find us on page 796. I wanted to get to this last section, the last half of the book, because it focuses, it paints a picture of what it is that God's going to be doing. Okay? And, and that's what Zechariah is saying. Zechariah says, people, in the midst of what you're called to do, look at what God is doing. And, you know, if you, if you knew how the game today was going to end, that might, well, it might make you not even watch. If you're a Denver fan. If, 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 if you knew, if you knew how the game was going to end, that might help you greatly if your quarterback were to fumble on the first play of the game. You can say, it's, no, no, it's, it's still going to be okay. It's still going to be okay. I know how, how this thing ends. This, this bigger end game, if I may, that we are in. What it is that God is doing. Zechariah, long before the book of Revelation was ever penned, and yet there's echoes of Zechariah in the book of Revelation. But long before the book of Revelation was ever penned, 
God has laid out. This is how I'm going to wrap it up. This is how it's all going to come together. This is how the consummation of the ages I'm going to finish. This is how I'm going to reach my end game. I am not through with you. I am going to restore you. It's going to be all that it was supposed to be. That's in Zechariah chapter 9 to 14. Let's just do a survey through there. Okay, Zechariah chapter 9. Look what God is doing. Look what God is doing in the world. First of all, in chapter 9, Christ comes in both humility and power. This is the chapter where that verse is written. Behold your king, in verse 9, sorry. Verse 9 of of Zechariah 9. Behold your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. Say, wait, I've, I've... I've come across that before, but it wasn't in in Zechariah, I'm pretty sure. No, it was in Matthew 21 or John chapter 12. But also, look at verse verse 10. There's There's a different emphasis of this king who's coming. I will cut off the chariot from me from the war horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off. He will speak peace to the nations. His rule will be from sea to sea. Well, that hasn't happened yet. Look at verse 14. The Lord will appear over them. His arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. And 1 Thessalonians 4 says that the Lord shall descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God. You see the same imagery, the same language, the same event is being described, the return, the glorious return of the Lord. So the Lord is going to come First in humility, but also in power. We see that play out in the Gospels, and it's affirmed. That second coming is affirmed in the epistles. Moving to chapter 10. Chapter 10 and chapter 11 together, you you have uh, echoes of Ezekiel. Ezekiel 34, the, uh, the shepherd of Israel is going to restore his flock. There's a lot of imagery of the shepherd there, and and it reminds us of John chapter 10, where Jesus says, I am the good shepherd who gives his life for his sheep. So the shepherd of Israel is going to restore. Look Look at verse 3 of chapter 10. My anger is hot against the shepherds. I will punish the leaders, for the Lord of hosts cares for his flock, the house of Judah. God cares for his people. God is not going to leave his people. In fact, look, at, look in chapter 11. We're just going to skip down to about verse, oh, verse 12, where, where the prophet has stepped into. He's describing the Lord in his role as shepherd. And he says, Then I said to them, If it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out my wages, because they're done with him. They're done with him as their shepherd. That's why they're weighing out his wages. How much are his wages? 30 pieces of silver. And then the Lord said to me, take those 30 pieces of silver, throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. You say, wait, I've heard that before. That, that sounds like Judas, that Judas had received 30 pieces of silver to betray Jesus. And later on, he, 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 he had remorse, he had regret, and he tried to give the money back, and they wouldn't take it, and it, so it was thrown into the temple. They said, what are we going to do with this? It's blood money. We can't put this in the treasury. And so they bought what they called a potter's field, a burial ground for poor people. 
predicted by Zechariah hundreds of years ahead of time. The Lord, the shepherd of Israel, is going to restore his flock. He's, he's going to do that by, by setting aside the false shepherds of Israel, their leaders, and he's going to raise up his own shepherd, a good shepherd, although he will be rejected and betrayed, the good shepherd will give his life for his people. Then you come to chapter 12. Israel will become a conundrum, a snare, and a trap for all the nations of the world. The nations of the world are going to, world in Zechariah chapter 12, verses 1 to 9, they're going to come against Israel. They're going to come against Jerusalem. And they're going to be trapped there. Look at chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. The burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of, of man within him. See, God has right over us as creator. As our creator, God has the divine right of sovereignty over his creation. You said, well, I, 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 I have free will. I don't, I, don't, I don't like what God's doing. Well, go make your own world. Go make your own people. I don't mean your kids. You didn't create them either. Start with your own dirt, okay? God has a divine right as sovereign. And as sovereign, this is what he said, the one who founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him, behold, I'm about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. Read on into the chapter, and, and, and Israel and Jerusalem are going to be attacked. The powers around them are going to be drawn to them. And that's how God is going, as he gathers them against his own people, he's going to use that as a moment of judgment against them. The nations are going to attack Jerusalem. It's going to get worse before it gets better. But God will give them victory over that. Chapter 13, verses 2 to 9, there's a transformation of God's people. I skipped over half of chapter 12. We'll come back to it. Chapter 13 from verse 2. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of idols from the land. There's going to be a, a change among God's people. There's another interesting verse here. It's worth uh, um, um, referring to. This is, this is a verse you've also heard. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Jesus said that predicting his own death and the scattering of the disciples. They all would flee away. Flee away in Matthew 26. Quotes that verse. At the end of chapter 13, in verse 9, they will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. Peter picks up on that. Those who, who were not a people will be called the people of God. Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 applies it to us. You who are without hope and without God in the world, who once were far off, have now been brought near by the blood of Christ, and he is our peace. There's a bigger there's a bigger thing going on here, that God is going to be restoring his people. God is going to be restoring them to peace so that when we come to chapter 14, God rescues his people at Christ's return. Look at chapter 14, verse 3. The Lord will go out and fight against those nations when he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. So the Lord of glory returns from heaven. And when he returns to planet Earth, he doesn't just return anywhere. He will not show up at Times Square. He will step down. His feet will touch the Mount of Olives. And actually, you read on in that, in that, in that passage, in the Mount of Olives, that, which is right along the Rift Valley, the Great Rift Valley, there's a huge earthquake zone there in that valley. And... The Mount of Olives is going to be split in two. The Lord has a heavy foot. 
He's going to step down. And it's interesting because when Jesus had gathered his disciples the last time they saw him on the Mount of Olives, and they asked him the question, Lord, is this the time when you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he says, it's not for you to know. He doesn't say, what are you talking about? Restore the kingdom of Israel. He's going to do that. But he says, not for you to know when. And he gives them their commission. And then he ascends out of their sight from the Mount of Olives. And the angel said, why are you gazing up into heaven like you just lost everything? Don't you know that this same Jesus is going to come from heaven in just as you saw him go into heaven? And the, and the just as includes the same location, Zechariah 14. His feet are going to step down on the Mount of Olives. I described that when we were in Ezekiel, how he then returns as the glory of the Lord, returns to Jerusalem in the eastern gate and into his temple. And they're going to celebrate the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles. Why that? The Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles, was when everybody in Israel would gather and, and, and they would make a temporary shelter, a booth, or a, kind of like a tent. And they would all come from all around and they would camp out in Jerusalem. Man, it must have been a mess. Can you imagine the number of porta potties this would take? But they gathered from all over and they returned to Jerusalem to celebrate the fact that as a people, they all dwelt together in this city, the city of God, where God had, had, had determined his own presence would dwell, and they as a people would dwell with God in his city, in his presence. Every year they were all commanded to come up and to celebrate that feast of tabernacle, to live, to dwell. Ah, oh, it's interesting. John chapter 1 says that the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Do you know that? The presence of God Himself in our midst in humanity. Wow. And when He restores Jerusalem, and when He comes to reign in His physical presence upon the earth, they're going to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. We are going to celebrate the presence of God in the midst of his people. That's coming. That's the end game. That's what it's for. And you know, it's interesting that the very last, very last verse of Zechariah, this is going to um, close another loop for you in the New Testament. And in that day, among with a bunch of other stuff, in that day there shall no longer be a trader, a merchant. Some of your versions read Canaanite, but the reference to a Canaanite was a Canaanite trader, a merchant. Selling things. Money changing. There will no longer be a trader in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. The purpose isn't, isn't saying Canaanites can't come to the temple. The purpose was saying there won't be any trading. There won't be any ripping off of people. Remember when Jesus comes into the temple? When he returns to Jerusalem, his triumphal entry, he comes riding on a donkey's colt and he comes into the temple. Where does he go? He goes into the outer court. And what's he do there? He has a fit. As they used to say in, in, in South Africa, the English people, they would say he tossed his toys out the cot threw his toys out of the crib. He, 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 he got mad. He got upset because my father's house was to be a house of prayer for all nations, even the Canaanites, but you have turned it into a den of thieves, merchants, money changers, profiteering on the requirement of my sacrifices. And there'll be no more of that. The people will worship the Lord in 
purity and in holiness in his presence. Now, that's the big picture. The Lord is coming. Events on the earth are going to culminate in his return. Even when it looks the, the worst for his people, Israel, it will be he's bringing about his plan to restore his people, Israel. There is a national future for Israel. There is this millennial, a thousand-year reign of Jesus coming. Zechariah didn't say a thousand years. That's in the book of Revelation. But he is coming. He will reign from Jerusalem, and all the world will celebrate. That's coming. It doesn't look like it now. We are not there yet. But it's coming. The Lord will do that. But how will that come about? Now, after the game today, there is going to be, according to the talking heads, you know, they have these older guys that used to play football, think they know the game, and they're going to say, this was it. This was the moment. This was the play of the game, right? Well, what is the game-changing moment? What is the play of the game in this eternal perspective from history, from eternity past to eternity future, from the fall of Adam to the return of Christ and establishment of his kingdom, ruling over all the world from Israel, from Jerusalem? What's the game-changer that makes that happen? When the world had all run away in rebellion, how is it that they have been brought back? How is it that way they have been restored? What's the game changer that makes that happen? I'm glad you asked. It, remember that passage we skipped? The second half of chapter 12. The game changer that makes this happen is the Spirit poured out. There is a Spirit-empowered turning to faith that changes everything. Look at Zechariah chapter 12. Zechariah chapter 12, and I will read from uh, verse 10 all the way through the first verse of chapter 13. And I will pour out. And this occurs after the nations attack Jerusalem when they are at their lowest point, when they are completely helpless. Then I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and plea for mercy. Some of you have a version that reads a spirit of grace and of supplication. That supplication is a plea for God's mercy. I love that translation. So that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be great as the mourning for Haddon, Rimmon, and the plain of Megiddo. The land shall mourn, each family by itself, the family of the house of David, the wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, their wives by themselves. It's interesting that the, uh, the, the descendancy, the... Uh, the, the family line through David's son, Nathan, is the part, branch of the family through whom comes Mary and thus Jesus. Eh, interesting side note. Okay, so there's Nathan by himself, their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself, their wives by themselves, and a lot of people all by themselves. Verse 13, or, or verse 1 of chapter 13. On that day, there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. There's the play of the game. There's the game changer. There's what it is that makes God's plan finish, come together. There's what it is that assures the end game as God has foretold it. Without that, it wouldn't happen. With that, 
everything changes. Now that is a moment in yet future history when God will pour out his spirit. It will be Pentecost 2. Just as God poured out his spirit in Pentecost, and Peter said, this is like what Joel said. And it's going to happen again on a national scale to Israel, and they are going to look on him whom there's pierced. So God is going to pour out his spirit, a spirit of enabling and a spirit that causes, the, causes them to plea for his mercy. And it says, as a result of that, as a result of the spirit removing the blinders and opening their eyes, they are going to look on me, on him whom they pierced. Did you catch that? Wait a minute, who's this? Is this, the, is this God who's saying they're going to look on me? Or is God saying they're going to look on him whom they pierced? Jesus. Oh, wow. Didn't know that was tucked away in there in those two pronouns. They will look on me, on him whom they pierced. There's the divinity of the Son again. The Son is, is also God. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. They will look on him whom they pierced and they will weep. They will weep as for a firstborn. God's firstborn. God's highest son. His unique son. They will weep as for an only son. Him whom they pierced, John 19 quotes that. When Jesus' side is pierced, John chapter 19 quotes that same verse out of Zechariah. And then there will be great mourning, each family by itself. There will be an individual repentance. There will be a looking at myself and my own guilt, and it was my guilt. We pierced him. He was, he was bruised for our iniquities. He was pierced for my transgressions. There will be that individual ownership, mourning, because of sin. He died because of my guilt. He died because of my sin. And the Spirit is the one who enables that. The Spirit is the one who pours out on these people at this time the ability for them to see what it is that caused this man to die. He didn't die for himself. He died for us. He died because of it. And so there was this mourning in the land. There's this repentance and it says in chapter 13, there will be a fountain opened of cleansing from sin. To cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. They are cleansed. They are forgiven. Now, I said before, that is a specific work of a particular people that God is going to do at a point in history that has not yet arrived. If you go and do evangelism in Israel today... It's a long, slow, uh, discouraging work because most people, the vast majority, even more than here, will not only not believe your testimony of Jesus, but they will oppose you and they will ridicule you. It's a hard place to tell the gospel. And yet, there will come a day when one of the hardest places to tell the gospel will become the easiest because God has poured out his spirit. But wait. I mentioned Acts chapter 2. God has poured out his spirit. God has already begun to do what he will do. When we step back and take a big picture, and this is why we're going through the whole Bible, we step back, we take a big picture, look what God is doing. Look what God is going to do. There's, the end of the game is fixed. I can encourage us along the way. But not only that, it encourages us to keep doing what God has given us to do. 
the sureness of it, the certainty of it, that game-changing moment has already happened. God has already poured out His Spirit at Pentecost. God already has indwelt His people by His Spirit who lives in you. God has empowered us and sent us on this same mission to tell of His Son who died, who rose, who's coming again. And as we do that, we will best do that you see, let me step back to, back to Zechariah for a minute. Zechariah was telling these people, you're building this temple is bigger than you realize. This, this temple you're building is not simply a place where you'll be able to go and worship. This is not a temple you're building simply for your children or your grandchildren to have a safe place to come and worship. That's not what it's about. This temple is the place where Daniel's prophecies are going to be fulfilled. This temple, although redecorated by King Herod, this temple is going to be a place where the king of glory is going to enter in. A far greater glory is going to fill this temple. God's greatest plan is going to be fulfilled around this temple that you're building in years ahead that you don't yet see. Could that same thing be true of us? We don't realize. We don't know. We don't get what it is that God will do with the work he's given us. The bricks, if you will, he's put into to our hands. Or to take the football analogy again, the, the plays that he has called us to run. We don't know the difference it's going to make in the game. You choose any play, the, the, uh, the, the first third down the Seahawks have in the second quarter, what difference is that one going to make? I haven't got a clue. And neither do you. We just hope it's not a fumble. But you and I don't see the play that he's given you and I to run, the difference it will make for all of eternity. That's what Zechariah is telling those people. That's what I'm convinced God is telling us. Step back. Be reminded of the bigger picture. Be reminded of what it is that the Lord has in fact done. The game-changing play has already happened. Christ died, rose again, has sent his spirit. It's already happened. So that what we do matters far more than we realize. Okay, let's go back. Let's take, let, let's take a look at those three again. What, it, what is it then should, that I should then continue to do in the midst of what God is doing? God pours out his spirit. God will pour out a spirit of grace and of a plea for mercy. What that tells me then, I better pray. It's not about what I do. It's about what God's going to do. It's about what God will do through his spirit. So I don't do anything before I pray. I pray, God, help me. God, give me grace. Give me enablement. Give me your power. Give me your courage to stand up and say something, to do something. And God, give, pour out a spirit of supplication. Would you soften my friend's heart? Would you soften my son's heart? Would you soften my spouse's heart? Would you, would you speak ahead of time to my neighbor, open their heart so that when we talk, they will hear your gospel? Because without the spirits moving, whatever you and I say will not make a bit of difference. It won't. But God will pour out a spirit of grace and of supplication, of a spirit of a plea for mercy. God, work in their hearts that what you call me to do will make a difference. The first thing we must do is pray. This tells us that if it's about God, if God is in this thing, then we ask him, God, do what you said. Do what you promised. The first thing we do is pray. The second thing we do is believe and remember. 
Believe and remember. They will look on me whom they've pierced. Have you believed that? That's the starting point. Have you believed it? That he was pierced for you, that Christ's death was for you as well as for me. That by him you too can have complete forgiveness, complete cleansing of all sin. Whatever the rubble of the past and the future is covered by God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. First of all, we believe. And from there, like I told the kids, or tried to remind the kids of this morning, that's what this table is about. We believe and we remember. Don't you need to remind yourself of that truth? You've got stuff in mind that makes you this week unworthy. Hmm? You've got stuff in mind that you think would disqualify you for the foreseeable future. This table says, wait a minute, don't listen to the enemy's lie. No, 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 no. Their sins and their iniquity, their sins and their guilt, I will remember no more. His body was given for me. His blood was shed for me. This table reminds us that we are forgiven. Believe that. And then remember that. I was thinking this um, yesterday, the day before. It occurred to me, the book of Ephesians is such a wonderful book. I thought to myself, if I don't know where to read in devotions, you ever have that? I want to read, but I don't know where I'm supposed to read. So maybe I'll just start at the beginning or I'll just open the book somewhere. If you're not sure where to read, would you read Ephesians? Talk about a book that is so rich and full of what it is that God has done for us as well as the practical implications and of how we live in light of that. It's full of this salvation, the reminder of it and the difference that makes in our lives. Pray, believe, and remember. A mourning, a turning from sin. This table, in, in thinking again of what it is that Christ has done for us, it, it is a time to reflect. We're going to take time. We're going to have an instrumental song first. And we're going to remember that there is a fountain filled with blood flows from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath, beneath its flood lose all their guilty stains. We're going to remember that we are forgiven. And it's going to cause us to reflect and maybe there's something that we need to turn and confess and lay before the Lord and accept his forgiveness for that too. Turn from sin and finally a fountain of forgiveness, I would say embrace forgiveness. And that goes two directions. Embrace God's forgiveness of you. We touched that already, didn't we? Embrace God's forgiveness. There is a fountain of cleansing. Would you believe it? Would you embrace it? Would you rest on that and quit disqualifying yourself? When, when guilt comes to mind, agree with God about it and say that too is covered by Jesus who loved me and died for me. And then embrace forgiveness then from you to others. Nothing epitomizes, demonstrates, manifests the gospel more than forgiveness. And when they say, but how can you forgive that? Don't forget to tell them why. Because God has shown me to forgive others even as God in Christ has forgiven me. I had a student ask me the other day, you guys have the student center? I was standing there behind the, county, uh, behind the counter because some of the students were coming up for drinks and things. And they said, you guys have the student center? Why do you do this? And I said, well, because you're our neighbors and Jesus told us to love our neighbors. 
just a simple way that I try to make sense out of what, why we do what we do because of the gospel. And when you have an opportunity to forgive something that many people might not forgive, do it. But don't just do it. Do it in Christ's name. Because God in Christ has forgiven me. Oh, as we approach this table now, I want us to do it. I'm going to ask those that are serving to come forward now. And I'm going to, I want to give us that time to pause together as a church and to reflect. We're going to pray together and ask the Lord by his spirit to open our minds, to open our hearts in prayer that we would do those things that we just talked about, that we would believe and remember we remember what God has done for us. If there's, if there's sin in mind, that we would turn from that. That we would embrace forgiveness for ourselves and from ourselves. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you.